Good morning and welcome to Indigenous Roots and Hoots, a podcast produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today our guest is Richard Kustavish. Mr. Kustavish is from the Abitibiwini First Nation in Quebec. He speaks English, French, and Algonquin fluently. He is the former president of the Social Services Minokin and has been involved in the field of health and social services at the regional and provincial levels for many years. He served as an administrator and manager of the health committee at the Kitsisakik First Nation. Did I pronounce that right? Kitsisakik or something Almost. like that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> In addition, he was the chief of, of his community and the grand chief of the Algonquin Council of Quebec for two terms. Mr. Gustavish has been published in the Mental Health and Aboriginal People of Quebec, the Green Book Position Paper of the Algonquin Nation on Environmental Issues, and the National Inquiry into First Nation Child Care. Mr. Gustavish spoke at the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO. Mr. Gustavus was the Vice Chair of the Aboriginal Healing Foundation and is currently the President of the Legacy of Hope Foundation. He has served the Legacy of Hope Foundation's Board of Directors since 2002. He is currently the President. Welcome, uh, Mr. Gustavus. Uh, maybe... Uh, you can just tell us a bit about who you are and uh, like where you come from, including your your community, your family background, where you were born, that kind of stuff. Uh, we'll start with that. Go ahead. Okay. At the beginning, my name was Ejinaguzi. That was the name that I received as a as a baby and as a kid. So I grew up. I grew up with that name until um, when I was six years old. When I was six years old, I've been uh, uh, at the residential school for 10 years. I learned French in that school, but also I, I have learned how to, how to lie, how to hate, that they are very bad for my family. I almost born on a train in Lachuk. My mom was seven months pregnant when I, I decided to come to this world. So we stopped at the Lachuk hospital on the way by train, you know. And uh, since it was the fall, the season, uh, autumn season, my father was so hurry and worried about the freeze up that's happening, you know, because our territory is at the north. So the timing, October 19 was, was really bad to come uh, to give birth to kids because it's the season that you have to be on a territory. So after three days in that hospital, they decided to, to leave the hospital and 
to catch the train and to go to BTB. That's why I was baptized in order for my parents to be let go at the hospital. They need to baptize the kid, me. So they give me the name of the pilot that supposed fly in. His name was Richard. Okay. <laughs> so when the baptize things happen, they call me Richard Kestabish. I didn't know that name until I get to the residential school. I don't know who was Richard Kestabish until I was at the residential school. Mm -hmm. So they stole my name. That's the first thing they did. It stole my name. I don't respond to people who call me Richard when I was young. I didn't know it was my name. So for the first six years of my life, I was raised beside the river where our camp was. We were a a big, a small gang of people. My father was the leader of that group. I had their uncles and aunties and grandma and and grandpa and uh, many dogs and uh, all these things that happened in the camp. I was there for six years. So I learned, I saw and I learned everything that I should know by that at that age. And then suddenly, just like that, boom, no more. No more, no more dad, no more mom, no more dogs, no more aunties, no more the family, gone. I didn't understand that. I, it was a, a, an absolute, and nowhere when we uh, when I was at that residential school. It was very painful not to know, not to know why, not to know where, not to understand what's happening. It's a very dark part of my life. I was lost. For, for a long time, because I, I didn't know anything about life outside of the residential school. Yes, it happens some, from time to time that I see my parents once, once in a while, you know, for not very long period, a month, two months at, at the most. And, uh, we are not able to communicate the situation that I was. So we just, we just trying to, to survive. We just try to, I guess, try to cope with the situation. And then at last, I guess, I get used to that kind of, that kind of thing. But during that period of time, 
10 years in residential school, I learned lots of bad, bad things, bad, bad things to do, you know, to be, to be a bad person, to be sometimes very mean. Uh, it is awful when you get out of that system, when you get out of the, of the school, only thing that you have is eight. You have no respect for your parents. You have no respect for anyone. And that was the first years of my life. It was sad for a long time until my dad take over my, uh, my education. He started to tell me about stories Lots of stories that I learned from my dad, from my mom, from from the, these things. And we are, and we are Indians at the beginning. We are, and then I I find out when I was chief that we are a First Nation called Abitibiwini. When I was a chief, the name of my band was Abitibi Dominion. It doesn't mean anything for us, Abitibi Dominion. So when I was a chief, the first thing that I did was to change the name of my community. And we call ourselves Abitibi because that's the territory that we are using to live. We know everything on that land. Mm -hmm. So our name is Abitibirini. We've been called that name when we visit some other face nations in the region. Yeah. We are Abitibirini. It, it evolves, you know. It evolves. It's the, um, the return to our culture, the re to return to our identity to return to our roots. Other people, the white people mainly, call us savages, Amerindian, Algonquin, and Autochton, indigenous. These are names for designating ignorance. Our way of calling people, native people, we call them Anishinaabe. We all Anishinaabe, but we use First Nation these years. But for me, it's Anishinaabe. It's very, very close to, um, to have a, a big, big family a big, big, big family, a large one. We have other Anishinaabe, like the Cree people of the North, the Anishinaabe from the west, from the east, we call Atsikamek. From the south, we have Iroquois, we call them Nadwe. And on the west side, we have Ojibwes. All these people are Anishinaabe. Oh. But they have their own identity, their own culture, 
their own spirituality, their own ritual, their own ceremony. Every one of them have their own. That's what they make the differences between us. So my goal, the things that I do now is to promote the right, the right names of the people that occupy this land. We call it ourselves Anishinaabe. We started to educate our na First Nation by having the name Anishinaabe. When I'm walking on the street here in Valdor, and when I meet some First Nation people, they always say, Quay Anishinaabe. This is the territory of the Anishinaabe. So I am Anishinaabe because of the big family, but I am a bit Tibiu in me because of the land that I occupy. It is a matter of identity. It's really important to have that in order to know exactly who you are and where we are going and how we're going to be, how, how we're going to develop our culture, our language, how to preserve our language. It's really important to know that, the origin of our existence. Sometimes I ask the question, how our language was born? I'm trying to answer to that. And I think the answer is somewhere in, in the land. Uh, the, the animals, the animals that walk, that flies, that swim, the trees, all these life things, I think they were the origin of our language. I strongly believe that. And we we are a very long step to find the right way to use it, to teach that to our kids. And I am very hopeful that we're going to be successful if we have all the resources that we need to do this this uh, this trip, this exercise, this the process that we are going in. We're going to need more, much more resources to, to acquire back, to reappropriate the things that they have been stolen from us. Right. And we can start easy, small things, like yeah. our names. Mm -hmm. My name is Ijenaguzi. I was called like that at the beginning. So we must return to that root and be able to identify really and to work our identity. This way you're gonna acquire dignity, you're gonna acquire uh, to be proud, you know, and uh, you're gonna be magnificent at the end if you knew exactly where you're coming from. I, uh, I understand exactly what you're talking about because I see a kind of a wave happening across uh, this country. We've been through a lot. Aboriginal people in this country have been through a lot over the last several hundred years. You know, uh, 
with the residential schools and, and the incarceration rates, incarceration, uh, the jails our young people, our people have gone into, and um, the child, the children being taken away from homes. All that kind of stuff, the missing and murdered women and the 60s scoop, all that has had a tremendous impact on our lives. And uh, uh, But now lately I've seen kind of a revolution, a silent, quiet revolution, change happening for the betterment of our people. And uh, people are starting to do things that you're talking about, uh, like changing their names back to the original original names and people going back to the land and spending more time with the land and recognizing the fact that they need to speak their language and restore their languages. So I think what you're saying is absolutely true. And uh, it's very interesting that you connect all that to, you know, the animals, the trees. That is so amazing, Richard. And I, and I, I think that's, uh, that's quite unique and unique perspective, you know, and, uh, uh, I really admire uh, your your views on that. Tell us about uh, maybe you talk a little bit about what you're doing now and, and, and how, how is that going? <laughs> I guess my um, my involvement in the uh, in the wellness in the healing, you know, the, this is this is a lifetime process, you know, healing to get to wellness, it's a, it's a lifetime process because of the terrible things that happen to us. It's going to be very difficult for some people to try to maintain, you know, a kind of um, momentum to get the healing in, in order to obtain the wellness. And the only thing that I know so far that is very good is it's the culture and the language. These are the most uh, important uh, section or values that we have to to um, to promote. It, you know, the things that happen regarding our culture and our language. It started long time ago to erase this thing called culture because culture was viewed by the authorities as a bad influence to our life. So they have to get starting to erase the consciousness of the culture in our head. They have to erase the... Uh, the language quietly, smoothly, in order to disappear, you know, at the end. I'm a very amazed the past two years, you know, to see the situation of the language in this country. I attend the um, language conference in Victoria last year. There was a shocking surprises for me to know that the people of British Columbia, especially on that island, that they have only three to five percent of the First Nation who speak fluently their language. Here in Quebec, we have the Itzikamek 
and the Inu, they have 95%, they were able to keep 95% fluency in this, in this province, in Quebec. The Cree has over 90% fluency people. Anishinaabeg, we are losing ground on this. I think I could say, to be very generous of, uh, uh, of the situation, I think they will still have 35% to 40% that we're still fluent in the Anishinaabe language. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is, this is absurd, you know, to have 95% fluently in Natsikamek or in uh, Inu here in Quebec and only 3% right at the other end of this country. Yeah. Why do you think I, that is? I, I have no idea. I talked to some people over there when I was attending this conference. And they were, I guess, they just let it go for a long time. During the 1930s, 40s, 60s and 50s, you know, they stopped yeah. using their language and yeah. then they lose it that in, the, in the process. That's the only explanation that I have after talking to a person over there explaining to me that when she was young, she was able to speak the language, but when she was 60, they don't remember a word of that. I, I guess we should have some kind of project to travel across the country and to study the fluency right. of the languages that they are left yeah. and try to understand how come these kind of situation happen in that way? How come British Columbia is losing they have only three to five percent of their language fluency, and uh, it's uh, yeah. I haven't. I've been really shocked to to find out that. So that's what I'm doing here. I I um, I develop an organization with some other people in order to promote culture, to find some people that they are very good at the art, painting, sculpting, making moccasins, making sweaters, making to be a designers, you know, create more of Dorothy Grant in this, uh, in this land. Yeah. Yeah. We, that's, that's the thing I'm, I'm trying to, to, to create, to, to have people, to elevate their work. We have magnificent, um, talented people here. They are very talented in sculpture, talented in sewing, designing, drawing, teaching. These people need to more uh, support in order to practice their their capacity, their abilities, in order to transmit the uh, 
the uh, the culture to the other people and also also to create these magnificent pictures and designing to expose them to the to the society to have these kind of things to be to be um, to, to to expose them to make public aware that we still have our creators here they have right. magnificent musicians here yeah also yeah so this is what i do uh, these days you know i'm i'm kind of busy with with that thing that's quite uh interesting uh that you go in that direction and uh, you're also you know you've been involved in the language uh uh restoration and uh now you're uh you're also working on the the arts uh and performance arts of your people and trying to promote that and get that you know more more of your people involved and uh i think we have a lot of people that are just naturally talented in in, in the arts Part of uh, what we do at the Legacy of Hope Foundation is is educating and promoting a, a greater understanding about about Aboriginal culture and reconciliation. Can you talk a bit about your work as president of the Legacy of Hope Foundation? How did it start and why was it created? When the Aboriginal Healing Foundation was created, it put in place, you know, we had our first meeting of member of the boards and we have a big huge gathering that happened in British Columbia on the Squamish territory. We sat there for uh, five days in order to have a discussions with survivors, residential school survivors at the, that meeting. We were about 500 people that, that attend that conference. So we, we discussed about how we're going to spend that money that the federal government was giving us, 350 million. At that time, I was very naive to see that 350 million, it's big money. But that was only small, a pocket change that I could say about the, the money because of the huge, huge needs of the communities about healing. You know, you know, the first year after we call up projects, we were over a uh, billion dollars of requests for projects. And we have only 350 million to spend in seven years, you know. That was, that was the first shock that I had at that time. So after the five years, the five days that we've been having the meeting, we decided, we made some decisions also during that period of time. But there was this woman I always remember that image. We were the 17 board members sitting on the, on the top stage there in the big, big hall. 400 people in front. And there was this woman. She stand up there and they come to us, to the board, to the table, and they give us $100.
he gave it to George. She says, after you spend the money, here's my, my share to carry on the healing. So the George took the money and we didn't know how, how we're going to use it. So the idea of creating a, a charitable organization was born. And that $100 was the first money that we've been having. And we create the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I was not part of the first group. No, I was nominated after mm -hmm. two years in there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 50 million a year, it's a lot of money too, to healing. And it was not feasible yeah. for the legacy of Wolf to gather 50 million each year. Mm -hmm. after that foundation when been spending all the money. So as president, I decided that we should not, we cannot carry the, on the healing mission that the Aboriginal Healing Foundation has. We cannot. It's too much. It is too much, too much money involved in there. The thing that we should do is to educate people educate our kids, educate our community, educate all the First Nation in Canada, but also very important, we have to educate the population at large. We have to educate Canada right. about residential school. That's the thing we should do. We gather, we're going to be gathering all the stories because there is not much of the documentation available to the government. We see that when the uh, Royal Commission has, they have, they gathered only few, few documentation to explain and to explore the residential school issue. But that was the big thing in our community. It was the residential school. It, it was needed to be told he was needed to be educated. We needed to, to, to go all over the places and to have witnesses to be recorded and to gather all those stories and creating awareness among the Canadian population about the residential school. It is a, a very a tough job to do that. We were lucky at the Legacy of Wu Foundation at the beginning to have so much passionate people to do this job, you know. You know, recording a story of a survivor, it's a painful thing to do, very painful. But we did it. We have over 600 stories at the, at the, at the Legacy Foundation. And we were lucky too to have the uh, Truth and the Reconciliation Commission also to take over after. I think we have over over three thousand stories 
of survivors, the witnesses of what happened in residential school. Terrible things that happened. Why some people are so desperate. All the explanations are being told in those stories. Telling those stories, it is to say to the people who we are. So, it is important to, to record these things and to, to expose these stories, to make studies about the, about the stories, to make, it, to make it public. I know most of the stories that we recorded, it's, it's, it's a shame. You know, we are ashamed of the things that happened to us. We are not particularly proud of that. I never told my story to my kids, but the technology helped me to tell my story to my kids. Mm -hmm. I don't have to say it directly, so I use, I use a machine like that yeah. to tell my story to my kids. Because it's so, it's so, hard to tell these things, you know, you feel all the shame, the humiliation that you've been, get through, you know, uh, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not easy. It's not yeah. easy. So stories has to be recorded and then these stories are going to be very useful in seven generations from now. And to understand the things that that happened to our, to us, the things that happened to our parents, our grandparents, and it's going to be it's going to be very useful at that time. Yeah, I'm I, sure of that. I didn't realize it was uh, until I started working for the Legacy uh, of Hope Foundation. I hadn't realized, like uh, being a survivor myself, I didn't realize that this went on for. Over a hundred years, you know, uh, close to two hundred years. Uh, over a hundred years, I didn't realize that until I started working at the Legacy of Hope Foundation, and I was astounded at you know uh, the numbers of people that that didn't that died while in in residential school. All these children, thousands of them, passed away while they were in care. This marks the uh, the twentieth anniversary of the uh, of the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Uh, and we're hoping uh, to do some uh, uh, something special. Uh, I don't know exactly the details. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how does it feel? Twenty years old now, uh, Legacy Hope Foundation. How does that feel? <laughs> uh, I guess I'm proud of the things that we've done. You know, small things. We did some little things. You know. Yeah. To educate because it's a, it's a, it's an issue that is so big, yeah. you know, the uh, the trauma is so huge. You can't tackle this in one shot. You have to go slowly, bit by bit, you know. And I think that's the um, the approach that we use in order to create all these materials. Yeah. In the past, you know, small videos, small books, 
workshops in the schools and uh, things like that, creating uh, some books for educational purposes and uh, videos that some survivors are willing to to um, to expose, you know, with no shame but with dignity and and proud, you know, to survive to so such trauma. And that's the thing that uh, the legacy of war was was meant to do. Was that's the purpose of the legacy? It is to carry on the trauma by educating people. That's the that's the heart. That's the soul of the legacy. Education at large. Right. If we can have all the population in Canada be aware of this, we will have been achieving one of, one of our goals. Still today, you know, still today, there are some people in my region here didn't believe such, such school exists 30 kilometers north of here. And that place was used to abuse kids. I still met some people that they're not aware of that here. Mm-hmm. So that's an education for me to to carry on. I use other means to do that. Legacy of hope with the people that they were involved at the beginning did a pretty good job. I'm very thankful for them for that. You know, it it took a lot of uh, a lot of compassion, a lot of compassion in order to to work like that. I know there were some difficulties sometimes. Relationships are sometimes very, very rough, very tough to endure. But even we still manage to, to cope with that and be able to produce nice works, you know, nice nice things that people are sh- should be should be and must be reading this uh next question is about uh uh part of what we do at the legacy hope foundation and uh, part of what we try and do uh, as you stated uh education and promoting awareness uh, about things that happened uh to aboriginal people uh this question is about uh reconciliation do you have a message to Canadians about reconciliation and how we can make a country a better place for everyone? <laughs> I'm going to, I think I'm, I'm, I'm repeating. I feel that I repeat this, this thing very yeah. often. Do small things, you know. Go to activities, cultural activities that each community is having here and now, you know, like the powwows. Powwows are, it's an open door. It's, it's a big opening. Both doors are open to go there. And talk to the people, you know. Talking to the people, you know, it's uh, just to make contact, 
not necessarily to ask questions, but just to say that I guess to hang around with the, with those activities, you know, there are kinds of activities that happen in in this country. They are big, they are small, and they are medium. They should go into these things. Like every year, year and then, we have the National Aboriginal Day. That's the thing that those people should attend, you know, to see how beautiful we are. June 21st. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have a story. Oh, this is a story we should apply to them. It's, a, it's at the beginning. Okay, uh, I tr I try to make it short, but sometimes it's a misunderstanding. But you know, when Christopher Columbus came here at the first time, he came with criminals, and the they they stick around for a while, and they were be they were treated very well, generosity, hospitality, all these things, and then. They have to go back. And sometimes those people, when they get back, you know, over there, they were they're questioning them. Said, what do you see over there? What did you find over there? But those people, they were not educated people when they they travel with Christopher Columbus here. They were people that they were not able to read or to write their own language. But one, one, one of the uh, uh, people that, uh, the man, one man, knew how to write, but he write Latin. And he write, he was in jail, you know. He write los in dios. In Latin, it means in French, les enfants de Dieu. Translating, it's the children of God. And they were talking about us. Wow. So they call it in French, les Indiens. Yeah. In French, it's still Indien. And in English, the Indians. Indians in Latin mean children of God. Wow, didn't know that. Amazing. That's why I'm stick to to that word, you know. I'm not an Aboriginal, I'm an Indian. <laughs> Even in French, you say, Je suis un Indien. Remember that. <laughs> that was the only way that this guy was able to, to express what he saw here in yeah. our territory. Richard, uh, the last part of our podcast, Roots and Hoots, is the Hoots part, uh, meaning something funny. We've talked about a lot about your roots and where you've been, what you've done. And uh, do you have a, we like to close this podcast off with a, a funny story. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you have one or two up your sleeve well, that you could share with us. <laughs> I always say that the first gift that the Creator was giving us to the Anishinaabe 
was the sense of humor. You know, that's the first, first thing. Yeah. If you don't have a sense of humor, you, you, you're going to become mean and uh, you, you're not happy. Well, thank you, uh, Richard. I want to really uh, uh, express my sincere appreciation on behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation, which you are a major part of. And uh, I want to thank you for taking this time to, uh, to do this podcast with us. And, and I'm sure our, uh, our audience, um, the people that are listening to this podcast, are going to find most of or all of what you have to say quite fascinating. We all appreciate uh, the time and effort you put into the Legacy of Hope Foundation, and uh, we, we certainly look forward to you uh, joining us. Uh, we're not exactly sure when it's going to take place, but our 20th anniversary uh, the Legacy of Hope Foundation is this year, so uh, I understand there's some, some things planned, but with this pandemic Corona-19 virus going around, it kind of limits a lot of stuff that that we can do, you know. So uh, I'm sure that some of the plans we had have had to change because of because of it. But uh, we'll, we'll uh, keep in tabs. We'll keep tabs. We'll let you know what uh, what's going to be happening. And uh, I really want to thank you again. Appreciate the time you've taken to to do this podcast. and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.